This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. As many of you will know, I recently suffered a loss. Something dear to me, very much a part of me, something that made me a better person. But the moustache just had to go. He had his time to shine, but just like the moustache, um, I want to speak to you this morning about getting lost. I'm willing to bet that um, at least 90% of the women have been lost before in East London or in Hemingway's Mall. But before I get stoned for, for being sexist, I also think that 90% of the men have admitted to not being lost when they have really been lost. <laughs> Earlier this, uh, this year, I, I was in Hogsback, um, a place that I, I know very, very well. And um, early one morning, I, I set out to, to do a lap over and around and, and back up the mountain. But it was, it was going to be a fairly long run, so I, um, I couldn't set out from my accommodation. Hopped into my car, uh, and, and I headed out. Uh, into the plantation, onto, into the forest. But it's important for you to know that um, this particular weekend, the weather was, was really poor, um, miserable by, by most people's standards, uh, cold and, and, and wet and, and rainy and muddy, um, the kind of weather that actually just pulls me outside. I just want to get out uh, when it's like that, when most people want to get under the blankets. Um, so I was, I was excited to, to head out that morning. But on this particular morning, there was a really thick mist that had, that had set in too. So anyway, I got into my car um, and, and I headed out in a direction on a road that I, that I knew fairly well. I was quite familiar with it, um, but I was heading to a particular destination where I wanted to just intersect with, uh, with the trail so I could hop on, uh, do a loop and, and, and come back to my vehicle. So I set out. And, and soon I, I realized everything was going well. Um, I was carrying on. I was, I was waiting for a particular crossroads where I knew I was going to turn left, past a few intersections, kept going. And then I realized that I could no longer see the mountain on my left due to the mist through the trees. So I, I wasn't able to use the mountain to orient myself in the forest anymore. So I kept going. And I, I started to descend right down, down the road a bit. And all of a sudden, things became a little bit unfamiliar. I started to, to doubt myself. Was I really where I thought I was? Am I going in the right direction? Should I maybe have taken one of those other intersections? So I stopped the car, uh, made a U-turn, and, and headed back looking for something that I, that I might have missed. Anyway, what, what ensued was, was me taking... Some dodgy forest contour paths uh, going through mud and, and rocks that surely only a 4x4 um, should handle. I was in, luckily in a high-clearance vehicle, but uh, it was some, some treacherous times when I just put the foot down and had to head up a hill 
uh, with, with much prayer and, um, and power. I then ended up down a, at the end of a long road in front of a, a farm gate destined for, for private land, and I just had no idea where I was. I had been completely turned around after a series of left turns and, and, and right turns and just completely disorientated by the, by, the, by the mist that had moved in. I just had no idea where I was. I eventually continued on the road and, and, and found, found the original road that I was on and thought, let me, just, let me just continue on it. Let me carry on and see what happens. And sure enough, a few hundred meters after the place where I had made the U-turn was my, my crossroads that I needed to take. Took my left and found my way uh, to the trailhead exactly where I needed to be. Needless to say, I enjoyed a awesome lap around the mountain, came back to my car, hopped in, and, and headed back home with absolutely no problems. What should have been a 20-minute trip from our accommodation to that point. It took me an hour, though. I'd just been completely, completely lost. And I've just admitted it. I knew where I was. I knew roughly where I was. I had the means of, of getting myself out of that place. I was in a vehicle. But I just had no idea what direction to go. I'd been completely turned around by a series of, of turns, and I, and I just had no idea what direction I was facing. I knew where I wanted to go, but I just had no idea where that actually was. And I know what you're thinking. Dude, GPS. Yes, 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 yes. I did think of that, but when the inclement weather moves in and hogs back, there's no signal, uh, and that very effective tool kind of just gets completely cut and becomes useless. I believe that each of us, at some point in our lives, and often at several points in our lives, have been lost. Yes, physically lost, I'm sure, many of us. But what I'm referring to this morning is being spiritually lost. Aimlessly wandering about in this life, knowing where we are, but actually not knowing where we're heading, which way we're facing, which way we should be going. And of course, I think that can... That can happen to us in this life for very many reasons. But I believe that this statement is the crux of it. The world sold you a map, but what you need is a compass. From very early on, we each get given this map by our parents or, or our guardians, and it outlines the boundaries that we, that we do life in. Where we, where we can go, where we can't go, what we should be doing, where we're encouraged to go. We're told that, that certain paths are, are not good ones, and certain roads lead to places where we actually don't want to go. And what generally comes with, with a map is a navigational voice. In 300 meters, turn right. At the roundabout, take the second exit. That one always gets me, eh? Why, why can't you just tell me to go straight? I remember the first time I heard that voice, I did a couple of loops around the, around the roundabout until I realized, okay, you just mean go straight. But we have parents and, and, and we have teachers 
giving us this, this voice, this navigation, plotting a route, helping us to, to know where to go. They say we're going to go to this school and we see, we see you're able to do this sport well. So we're going to invest in you in this area. You're going to study hard. You're going to finish school. We see that you have an aptitude for this particular thing. So you're going to get to the end of your, your school career. And here's a few options of, of, of paths that, that you can take. But what happens to many of us is as we, we grow older, we realize that we've actually been looking at this map with our, with our eyes, our hands around it, cupped around our eyes, and our face right up against the map. And slowly as we become teens and young adults, we realize that there's a lot more to this map. We start to drop, start to drop our hands and we see, hang on. This is a big, wide world, and there's actually a lot beyond that particular mountain or across that particular road, down that path. As we begin to broaden our horizons, we realize there is a lot of living out there to do. And what happens? Soon we find ourselves down those paths. The ones that the parents and your teachers say, don't go down. And we end up in those places without the necessary navigation tools to know what to do, without that irritating GPS lady voice in our ear. So what do we revert to? We use worldly landmarks. How do you give directions to your local KFC? You know that building there on, on the right, the white one? Okay, you take a right there, you head down, you're going to go through a set of traffic lights, and you get to a turning circle, go left, there'll be a large open patch of grass on your left, and three blocks down, you're going to see the red building on your right, and you have arrived at Crispy Wings. We use physical landmarks to find our way in space. So when it comes to finding our way in unfamiliar territory, we tend to apply that same sort of thinking. I remember for me, um, fresh out of school, in, in the biggest pond I'd ever been, as the smallest fish I'd ever been, I needed to now begin to navigate my way as a young adult and, and, and find my, my path in the world. And I remember looking around, I was sort of in a, in a group of friends where um, the main mana, you know, the, the proper oaks, were the ones and all the guys who were getting the lack of chicks. I noticed certain behaviors in their life. They were drinking excessively, using foul language, disrespecting people, dabbling in drugs, sleeping around, treating women like, like objects. But I saw other stuff in their lives. These were the good businessmen. These were the guys who were driving the fancy cars. These were the main players in the game. So I began to, to mimic some of their behavior. In an effort to, to navigate this, I used what I saw as worldly landmarks as a way to follow and find my way. If this, if this is what these guys are doing, if this is the result it's proving, there must be, this must be an effective way to navigate this path. So I oriented my vessel towards these particular landmarks 
and began to, to follow after them. And this is exactly what early travel was like. So before the compass was invented, you hopped in a ship and you used that mountain and that mountain and those stars to navigate your way through the seas. But of course, those are, those are very limited and actually unreliable things. Geographical landmarks fade with distance or bad weather. And the stars generally only come out at night, although they're in the day, but we don't see them. Or cloud cover could, could hamper that. So these are actually incredibly unreliable and, and limiting factors when we're trying to navigate through this life. Possibly the one place in this world that you don't want to be relying on unreliable navigational tools is the roughly 500,000 square mile open seas that is found off the coast of Florida, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. The Bermuda Triangle, also known as the Devil's Triangle. I don't know if you know that. And it's very fitting for my illustration this morning. This area is uh, the common denominator for many maritime mysteries and aircraft anomalies. Myth, legend, and conspiracy theories abound about this mystery triangle. But I found, um, I found just, just two stories that are particularly strange. The first one is from 1881. A 210-foot American white oak schooner vessel named Ellen Austin was going from New York to London when she stumbled upon a derelict vessel near the Bermuda Triangle. Everything seemed fine with the unidentified schooner drifting just north of the Sargasso Sea, except the fact that the entire crew was missing. Captain Baker of the Ellen Austin asked to observe the vessel for two days to make sure it wasn't a trap. After two days of no response from the ship, the captain entered the abandoned vessel with his crew to find a well-packed shipment with not a soul in sight. To tow it back, the captain placed a prize crew on the ship, set to sail together. However, after two days of calm waters and smooth sailing, a squall separated the ships and the derelict vanished. Days after the storm, the lookout spotted the vessel through his spyglass again, drifting aimlessly far away. After hours of effort, Ellen Austin caught up with the vessel, only to find, once again, it had no crew on board. One crazy report actually suggested that the ship was spotted once more, this time with the full crew on board, just not the one that the Ellen Austin had placed on it. But you didn't hear that from me. The second story is one of the most famous in the Triangle's history. In December 1945, a group of five U.S. Navy Avenger torpedo bombers, what a name, collectively known as Flight 19, left Fort Lauderdale in Florida for a three-hour exercise and just vanished. Flight leader Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor became convinced his compass was malfunctioning and that they were flying in the wrong direction. A storm blew in and Flight 19 became increasingly disoriented. Taylor thought they were flying over the Florida Keys, but that didn't seem possible. 
It had been less than an hour since he had made his scheduled pass over the Bahamas, yet he was convinced the planes had drifted hundreds of miles off course to the Florida Keys. Disagreements over whether they should be flying east or west were heard crackling over the radio. Taylor's final words came through, preparing his men for an ocean landing as they ran out of fuel. And then, static. The Navy deployed search planes, a pair of PBM Mariner seaplanes took off and followed in the footsteps of Flight 19, but disappeared from the radar, and much like Flight 19, were never seen again. Cue the spooky music. Okay. Why am I telling you possibly the biggest load of hogwash you've ever heard from the pulpit? Because the Apostle John warns us and, and if you allow me a little bit of creative license here, he warns us of a Bermuda Triangle of our own, where I believe a far greater number of people go missing. Let's turn to, to 1 John 2, verse 16. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Here John basically categorizes all sin into these three broad categories. He essentially plots the waypoints of a deadly triangle that ensnares so many of us. Let me help to, to just define each of those areas for you. The lust of the flesh, that includes any sin that is of a carnal, sensual, and bodily nature, talking sexual immorality, gluttony, drugs, violence, the lust of the flesh, in essence, is selfishness. The lust of the eyes includes any sin that idolizes materialism or anything that places itself above God Almighty. We're talking money, possessions, physical things, etc. In essence, it's idolatry. And the pride of life includes any sin that leads to arrogance, power, Pride in oneself or narcissism, presumption, and boasting in one's achievements. This is confirmed when it plays out in, in two well-known biblical accounts um, of temptation. Number one is the fall of man in Genesis 3, and the second is the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. So we're going to go to those accounts quickly. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6 reads, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be made like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. There we have it. Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good, the lust of the flesh, selfishness, wanting something good for herself. She saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, the lust of the eyes. 
idealizing, idolizing something material, something that she desired with her eyes. And finally, it was desirable for gaining wisdom. That's the pride of life. Wanting something to be proud of. Wanting something that she could boast in. In the same way that Satan tempted Eve, he also came to Jesus with the same intentions. After Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit had filled him, he was led into the wilderness for 40 days where he ate nothing. And Satan came to him with the same temptations. The lusts of the flesh, the devil said, command these stones to be made bread. Jesus would have been hungry. Bread would have been a, a really, really good thing to, to have at the time. The lust of the eyes, the devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, said, just bow down and worship me and you can have this all. The pride of life, the devil challenged Jesus to cast thyself down. He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. Boast in, in, in who he was. He could have tossed himself down and, and the angels, could have, he could have been proud in the fact that the angels came to his rescue. At this point, I'd, I'd love to be able to offer just a, a three-step program, three-step transition just to, to make us completely avoid this temptation triangle. But unfortunately for all of us, it doesn't work that way. The temptation triangle is unavoidable. Because we're born into a state where we have vulnerabilities and weaknesses in one or more of these three areas. And we have to travel through this area, not once, not twice, but several times in our life. We find ourselves voyaging constantly through the Bermuda Triangle the temptation triangle that John lays out before us. I do, however, have a three-step solution that can help us stay on course as we navigate the rough waters. Remember, the world sold you a map, but what you need is a compass. So let's take a look at that compass. First, we need to start with direction. Jesus holds out a gift to each of us, a gift of, of, of living a new way of life, a new direction, a different way. He hands us a compass that is calibrated to true north, and it points directly to him and his ways. I believe for each of us this morning, there is good news. God sent his son Jesus to die for us on the cross that we may be made whole and new and live in freedom in this earth and live for eternity alongside him in heaven, praising his name. And we generally like that. We like that part, eh? Sounds good. We love the good news. But why is there good news? What is the reason we have good news? Because there's bad news. There's bad news too. In the absence of bad news, there's no need for good news. It's just news. I think we need to be confronted with the gospel more often. We need to realize that there is good news for us, which a lot of us have accepted and are living in, but as a result of the fact that there is bad news. 
We're sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. None of you are good people. I love you, but you're not good. I'm sorry. I hope I'm not the first person to tell you that. None of us is good people. There is nothing we can do to be good. There is no, nothing we can do to earn our place into heaven. It is purely by the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. And we've got to, at some point in our lives, realize that we have no idea where we are going. We have no direction We don't know where we're heading. We know where we are, but we're just aimlessly rambling from place to place with no idea of where we're actually going or where we're facing even at the time. As well as direction, the compass also gives us the word, the needle that points and shows us the direction we should go. If we return to our two stories of temptation, we'll notice that Although the temptation was the same, the outcomes were vastly different. Eve ultimately succumbed to to the temptation and sinned, while Jesus stood strong and avoided it. What was the difference? The devil was able to deceive Eve by first questioning God's words, by asking, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He just planted a seed there. A seed of doubt. And then he challenged and twisted God's word, saying, You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The devil's success in Eve's temptation came by him corrupting the word of God. But when the devil tried the same tricks on Jesus, He failed miserably because Jesus was able to recall and recount God's promises from the scriptures verbatim. When the devil said to him, command these stones to be made bread, Jesus answered him saying, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. When the devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. When the devil challenged Jesus to cast himself down, he shall give his angels charge over thee and keep thee. Jesus answered unto him, saying, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I believe Jesus modeled what, what the psalmist speaks about in Psalm 119. From verse 9 it reads, How can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. When we hide something of value, we generally hide it pretty well. And we hide it in a place where at a moment's notice, we will know where it is. We can immediately go and dig it up or fish it out from from somewhere. We can recall exactly where it was. 
And also we tend to we tend to hide it well. We protect it so that it can't be stolen and that it can't be corrupt in any way. This is what we need to do with the word of God. When temptation comes, we should have the word of the Lord so deeply nestled within us and right at our fingertips that we can we can recall and recount things exactly as, as, as Jesus did. He was able to draw out the words and promises of God at a moment's notice, pure and uncorrupted by anything. The final element of the compass is that God places inside of us the magnetic pull of the Holy Spirit that works together with the Word of God to always keep us pointing in the direction of Christ. Once we've made a decision to, to follow Jesus and align our lives with, with his direction and we commit ourselves to immersing every part of us and every day into the word of God, then we need to allow the Holy Spirit to keep us pulling us along on that path of purity. Because as well as the magnetic pull on our lives of the Holy Spirit there is also a very strong magnetic pull from the world and the temptations we find in the temptation triangle. As many theories as there are surrounding the Bermuda Triangle, uh, from supernatural spooky ghost stories uh, to, to huge holes in the seabed that just swallow ships, one of the most popular is that over this particular area there's a there's a particular, particularly strong magnetic field in, in the earth that actually throws out the compass and has, has ships and, and, and planes following direction that they shouldn't be. And this is exactly what is alluded to in the book of James. In James 1, 14 to 15, it says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Drawn away, he's pulled away from the direction that, that God intended him to go. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Sin never starts. Sin is never complete in one instant. It's something that gets birthed, something that gets conceived, something that grows and ultimately brings death. There is a very strong force that pulls us away from the from the direction that God intends for us, towards a place that we really don't want to find ourselves. I want to just share um, share a little bit of my my own my own journey and my own story of being pulled into a direction that I that I never wanted to go. As a young boy, I, I believe I, I was given, given a good map. My parents laid out a good map of, of boundaries for me. Uh, there was a good balance of work and play, um, of, of caution, of coming and going, of seeking, of pursuit. And certain roads that, that they said shouldn't, shouldn't be gone, gone down. Freedom in some areas, restriction in others. There was a strong religious component to to my upbringing. But ultimately, throughout my childhood, my direction came from them. I was never taught about a true north. 
I never had a living relationship with Jesus. I never knew what direction I was actually heading, apart from the direction that my parents had given me. However, late in my primary school um, life, as an early teen, um, I was like a surfer, skater dude, and I, um, I got absorbed into the, to the surf culture, which, believe it or not, was actually very Christian. And I found myself in a, uh, in a group called Christian Surfers, um, a particular ministry in town, and uh, it was just really a bunch of a bunch of guys, a bunch of young guys having having fun and girls too, and um, I started to see something in a lot of them. They were they were living differently. They began to these guys had had given their life to the Lord, and and they were just living a slightly different life to to what I was. And I saw something desirable in that. And one night. There was an opportunity and, and a lot of conviction fell on me and I decided to, to give my life to the Lord. In that, in that moment, I was given that compass. I was given the direction. But it was also at around about that same time in my life as a young teen where I began to be drawn towards what is possibly my biggest vulnerability and weakness and that was the lust of the flesh. As a young boy, discovering my body and my, and my sexuality um, through a series of sort of unfortunate wrong place, wrong time kind of events, I was exposed to things that led me down a progressively darker path. As a result, I, I found myself entangled in a in a web of, of lust and all its manifestations. I remember thinking that marriage would be the solution. Surely all I needed was a wife and, and all of this nonsense would go away. But it didn't. And instead I, I went into a relationship with this part of me that I kept hidden. And it caused, it caused unnecessary pain and unnecessary heartache for myself and those around me. And it wasn't until, until later that I exposed this and I began to speak about it, like I am this morning, that there was a degree of freedom that I began to, to find. I was able to put boundaries in place. And as a result, I, I live in freedom as I stand here, which is a beautiful thing. But I lost so many years of my life going down a path that I should never have gone down. Going down a path that I believe so many young boys and men still find themselves down. What is the most what is the best way or the worst way to make a compass entirely useless? Simpler than that, Peter. Leave it in your pocket. Never take it out. If we, if we don't bring things into the light, 
if we don't take, take this tool that God has used and bring it out so that he can actually effectively guide us, we will never find the direction we're supposed to be. We can say we're Christian. We can say all the right things, do all the right things, act the right way. But if we continue to leave the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, if we continue to leave these sins unchecked and unspoken about, we will never reach the destination that God has planned for us. So I want to call the, the band up. They can, they can join me on stage. You know, unfortunately, giving your life to the Lord and finding that direction doesn't solve all our problems. It doesn't stop there. Because daily, we're still commuting through the Bermuda Triangle. Every day, temptation is knocking at our door. And the pool of the world and of sin is strong. It's strong. And if you don't realize it, your compass is going to eventually point you in a direction that you should not be going. So we need to begin to use this tool effectively. It starts with saying, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to know the direction for my life. I want to know where I'm heading. And then we've got to dive into the Word of God. If you aren't reading your Bible every day, you are, you are making yourself vulnerable to the schemes of the enemy. If you haven't welcomed the Holy Spirit into your life, and you're struggling, struggling to read the Word, struggling to understand, struggling to be disciplined, struggling with the day-to-day, you need to welcome the Holy Spirit back into your life, into your heart, maybe for the first time. And say, just come and take the wheel. Direct me in the way that you want me to go. Because although the pull of the world is strong, the pull of the Holy Spirit is way stronger. But not if we take that compass and put it in our back pocket. Then we're just walking around without a GPS signal lost in the forest. If you want to stand with me quickly, I'm just going to close with this. Um, it's not easy for, um, for me to stand up and, and, and speak, speak about this. For none of us, it's, it's nice to expose our shortcomings. And our failures. But this is where God can work best in our weakness. This is where He can be strong. And it's important for me to, for you to know that I am no saint. I'm just saved because of what Jesus did for me. None of us are saints. None of us have the answers. None of us really know what we're doing. None of us can save ourselves. 
without Jesus, we're a mess. Completely lost, turned around in the woods. We have no idea where we're going. And we're more than likely using worldly landmarks to navigate through this life. Those are unreliable things to do. You might make some distance in this life, but at some point, the clouds are going to move in. You're not going to be able to see the mountain that, that you were using to guide your path. Or nighttime is going to give way to day and the stars will disappear. And you'll have no idea where you are. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share. Sing.